Hey y'all, what is going on? What is going on? It's your girl, Melba Pearson, Melba for Miami, Melba for Justice, also known as the Resident Legal Diva. And it is time for the first Mondays with Melba for 2023. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday break, got to spend time with friends, family, loved ones, and was able to like rejuvenate and start to set the tone for the year that is 2023. Um, we all know that 2022 was a bit challenging, so definitely hoping for the best for all of us that we will have a productive and peaceful year. So as has been the, the tradition here on Mondays with Melba, every Dr. King day we honor his legacy. And a lot of times folks really focus on the I have a dream speech, not that it isn't one of the most beautiful, powerful speeches, you know, ever to be delivered by anybody, like ever, right? But folks like to use that whole, you know, content of judging a person by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And unfortunately, that, that phrase has become weaponized by people who truly don't want to see racial justice and just sort of use that quote as a way to absolve themselves in some ways and, you know, see like, see, I know something about Dr. King. But Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was so much more complex than that. His work was not only just about racial justice, he was looking at economic justice, and he wanted equality for everyone, not just black and brown people, but he wanted to look out for poor white people. And he understood that the enemy to a lot of us, to many of us, is that capitalistic system that often finds us, you know, being marginalized, working crazy hours, busting unions, you know, that sort of thing where workers don't aren't on equal footing and aren't able to live the productive life that they want to lead, whatever form that may take. So I always like to kind of dig in to some of the more lesser known speeches because there's so much to learn and to glean from that. And a lot of times it's teaching me because I'll literally be Googling like Dr. King's speeches and I'm like, oh, I've never heard this one before. And I'll start to read it and start to really think about and reflect what he dealt with at that time, as well as how that applies to today. So before I get into that, I want to, first of all, center the fact that January, this January, is the 100-year anniversary of the Rosewood Massacre. Now, Rosewood is a town in Central Florida where, of course, as many racial atrocities begin, there was an allegation by a white woman that a Black man attacked her. And what was the response? The response was for a whole bunch of white people to come through this town of very much predominantly, pretty much was an all black town and go through lynching, murdering, burning, and just literally destroyed the entire town. And to this day, we don't even know if what that woman said is true, much like the instance of Emmett Till, where the woman eventually came out and was like, yeah, I was lying and never got charged for it, even though she caused the murder of a child. But we're not going to go down that road. But just going back to Rosewood, I encourage folks to learn the history about it. Um, Dr. Marvin Dunn, who is Professor Emeritus at Florida International University, bought a plot of land up in Rosewood and has been doing tours to educate people on the history of what happened there and the atrocities that happened there. Um, 
the, the, the thing that really bothers me is especially as we get into this whole quote unquote anti-woke foolishness and all of this about, you know, we can't teach certain parts of history because it's going to make people feel bad. Listen, this is key history of America that people need to know and confront, right? And the goal here is not like, oh, we want to make white people feel bad and let them sit in the corner and cry. But I'm okay if white people today feel bad. And let me tell you why. Because if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So white folks, black folks, everybody who calls themselves a resident of this country should understand the full history of this country. Good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. Because history rhymes. History in some ways repeats itself. And if we don't learn from the horrible things that happened in the past, we're going to say it in a different form today. And that means injustice will continue to prevail. So, you know, if you think about it in the context of Germany, you think Germans today don't feel horrible about the atrocities that were perpetuated on the people of the Jewish faith and people who identified as LGBTQ or gypsies, you know, because because the Nazis would uh, hate killing everybody who wasn't white, blonde hair, blue eyes, right? Let's not even get that twisted. But the majority of their ire was reserved for people of the Jewish faith. But don't you think Germans today feel bad about it? Of course they do. But that's why it is taught in schools from from youth, from baby, like, though, this is what happened in the past. Here's how we screwed up. And this is how we're going to make sure this never happens again. There are multiple museums and exhibits in Germany dedicated towards, you know, the end of, you know, talking about the Holocaust and making sure that that sort of racial hate does not ever come back again. Sadly, we are seeing some right-wing groups trying to kind of rewrite that history and move Germany away from that. But at this juncture, they are not in the majority. And the school system is very integral in teaching that history of the Holocaust. So I believe in America, we have to confront this history to make sure that these structures that were put in place to marginalize and harm people do not continue to flourish and move forward. So that's why it's very important to really understand these his, this history and to understand Dr. King in more than just one narrow speech, but in the broader depth and breadth of his work. So the speech that I'm going to read today, and I'm, I've chopped out parts of it because it's a pretty long speech, and I don't want to keep everybody here all day. I'm you know cognizant of the fact that this is a holiday. I hope folks did an act of service, you know, because that's one of the big things for Dr. King Day that many folks get together. You know, there's a parade, there are parades across the country, but there's also opportunities to be able to serve your community, whether it's something in terms of racial justice, whether it's in terms of a neighborhood cleanup or feeding people that are unhoused or in transition. You know, there are different ways you can give back to your community in the spirit of what Dr. King was about. So the speech I'm going to talk about today is called Give Us the Ballot. Give Us the Ballot. And the reason why I'm going there with this is because, of course, we all know from the events of January 6th and the discussion around whether or not elections are rigged, whether or not elections are fair and, and free. We've seen in Florida how people who have felony convictions got their right to vote back, but then in some circumstances, 
were not eligible, were not told that they weren't eligible, registered anyway, and now are showing up and getting arrested and, and going to prison for voting when they were told by the state of Florida they were eligible to do so. Yeah, that's happening. But also I wanted to touch on the concept of gerrymandering, which really impacts the power of different groups to be able to select who they want to represent them rather than being pushed in a certain or divided in a certain uh, pocket so that their power is diluted. So the two really co-intersect. Co so that's why it was important to kind of center and start with the speech. And then I'll talk a little bit about gerrymandering and the lawsuit that the ACLU of Florida has put forth against the city of Miami for gerrymandering. So that's where we're going to be going today. So first off, I'm going to start by reading the speech. And yes, the iPad is back. So I will start by reading the speech. Now, to give context, this speech was given on May 17th, 1957 in Washington, D.C. It was after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which desegregated schools. But it was before the Civil Rights Act of 1965 and before the Voting Rights Act of 1968, which addressed a lot of the injustices around you know, black and brown people trying to be able to get access to the vote. So for instance, you couldn't vote unless you took a literacy test, unless you paid a certain amount of money. I mean, there were all these different ways that especially Southern and former slaveholding states were using to make sure that black folks couldn't vote and develop political power and be able to have a say in, in what should happen in their community. So that's the background of where this speech came from. Unfortunately, as we know, Dr. King did not have the opportunity to see the passage of the Voting Rights Act because he was murdered on April 4th, 1968. So the speech is as follows. Mr. Chairman, Distinguished Platform Associates, Fellow Americans. Three years ago, the Supreme Court of this nation rendered in a simple, eloquent and unequivocal language, a decision which will be long stenciled in the metal sheets of succeeding generations. For all men of goodwill, this May 17th decision came as a joyous daybreak to the end of the long night of human captivity. It came as a great beacon of light to hope of hope to millions of disinherited people throughout the world who had only dared to dream of freedom. Unfortunately, this noble and sublime decision has not gone without opposition. This opposition has often risen to ominous proportions. Many states have risen up in open defiance. The legislative halls of the South ring loud with such words as interposition and nullification. But even more, all types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. Again, I'm, I'm reading the speech as it was written at the time. We know that certain language would not be used today, but again, I want to give it an accurate historical context. The denial, the denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. And so our most urgent request to the president of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote. Give us the ballot and we will no longer have to worry about the, worry the federal government about our basic rights. 
Give us the ballots and we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute of the books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty moms into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not only sign a Southern manifesto because, because of their devotion to the manifesto of justice. Let me repeat that again. They will send, we will send to the secret halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern manifesto because of their devotion to the manifesto of justice. Give us the ballot and we will place judges on the benches of the South who will do justly and love and mercy and will place at, at the head of the Southern states governors who will who have felt not only the tang of the human, but the glow of the divine. Give us the ballot and we will quietly and nonviolently without rancor or bitterness implement the Supreme Court's decision of May 17, 1964. In this juncture of our nation's history, there is an urgent need for dedicated and courageous leadership. If we are to solve the problems ahead and make racial justice a reality, this leadership must be fourfold. First, there is a need for a strong, aggressive leadership from the federal government. So far, only the judicial branch of government has evinced this quality of leadership. If the executive and legislative branches of the government were as concerned about the protection of our citizenship rights as the federal courts have been, then the transition from a segregated to an integrated society would be infinitely smoother. But we so often look to Washington in vain for this concern. In the midst of the tragic breakdown of law and order, the executive branch of the government is all too silent and apathetic. In the midst of the desperate need for civil rights legislation, the legislative branch of the government is all too stagnant and hypocritical. This dearth of positive leadership from the federal government is not confined to one particular party. Both political parties have betrayed the cause of justice. The Democrats have been betrayed by it capitulating to the prejudices and the undemocratic practices of the Southern Dixocrats. The Republicans have betrayed it by capitulating to the blatant hypocrisy of right wing, reactionary Northerners. These men so often have a high blood pressure of words and an anemia of deeds. That is pure shade. I love it. In the midst of these prevailing conditions, we come to Washington today pleading with the president and the members of Congress to provide a strong, moral, and courageous leadership for a situation that cannot permanently be evaded. We come humbly to say to the man in the forefront of our government, 
that the civil rights issue is not a ephemeral, evanescent domestic issue that can be kicked about by reactionary guardians of the status quo. It is rather an eternal moral issue which may well determine the destiny of our nation in, an, in the ideological struggle with communism. So all those folks who are like, oh my God, MLK is a communist, hi. Exhibit A right here, okay? The hour is late. The clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. A second area in which there is a need for strong leadership is from the white Northern liberals. There is a dire need today for a liberalism that is truly liberal. What we are witnessing today in so many Northern communities is a sort of quasi-liberalism which is based on the principle of looking sympathetically at all sides. It is a liberalism so bent on seeing all sides that it fails to become committed to either side. It is a liberalism that is so objectively analytical that it is not subjectively committed. It is a liberalism which is neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. We call for a liberalism from the North, which will be thoroughly committed to the ideal of racial justice and will not be deterred by the propaganda and subtle words of those who say, slow up for a while, you're pushing too fast. A third source that we must look to for strong leadership is from the moderates of the white South. It is unfortunate that at this time, the leadership of the white South stems from the close-minded reactionaries. These persons gain prominence and power. Watch this now. These persons gain prominence and power by the dissemination of false ideas and by deliberately appealing to the deepest hate responses within the human mind. History, y'all. It rhymes. It is my firm belief that this close-minded reactionary recalcitrant group constitutes a numerical minority. There are in the white South more open-minded moderates than appears on the surface. These persons are silent today because of their fear of social, political, and economic reprisals. God grant that the white moderates of the South will rise up courageously without fear and take up the leadership in this tense period of transition. I cannot close without stressing the urgent need for strong and courageous and intelligent leadership from the Negro community. We need a leadership that is 1957 calm and yet positive. This is no day for the rabble rouser, whether he be Negro or white. We must realize that we are grappling with the most weighty social problem of this nation. And in grappling with such a complex problem, there is no place for misguided emotionalism. We must work passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of freedom, but we must be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. We must never struggle with falsehood, hate, or malice. We must never become bitter. 
I know how we feel sometimes. There is the danger that those of us who have been forced so long to stand amid the tragic midnight of oppression, those of us who have been trampled over, those of us who have been kicked about, there is a danger that we will become bitter. But if we be will become bitter and indulge in hate campaigns, the old, the new order, which is emerging, will be nothing but a duplication of the old order. We must meet hate with love. We must meet physical violence with soul force. There is still a voice crying out through the vista of time saying, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Then, and only then, can you matriculate into the university of eternal life. That same voice cries out in terms lifted to cosmic proportions. He who lives by the sword, will perish by the sword. And history is replete with the bleached bones of nations that have failed to follow this command. We must follow nonviolence and love. Now, I'm not talking about a sentimental, shallow kind of love. I'm not talking about eros, which is a more aesthetic, romantic love. I'm not even talking about philia, which is a sort of intimate affection between personal friends but I'm talking about agape. I'm talking about a type of love that will cause you to look and love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed the person does. We've just got to love. There is also another warning signal. We talk a great deal about our rights and rightly so. We proudly proclaim, proclaim that three-fourths of the peoples of the world are colored. We have the privilege of noticing in our generation the great drama of freedom and independence as it unfolds in Asia and Africa. All of these things are in line with the unfolding work of providence, but we must be sure that we accept them in the right spirit. We must not seek to use our emerging freedom and our growing power to do power to do the same thing to the white minority that has been done to us for centuries. Quick aside, because that's always the, the, the fear, right? Like, oh my gosh, if we give Black folks power, if they're able to ascend to the highest height, they're going to turn around and exact revenge on white people. This is very clearly stated by Dr. King that that's not the intent. It's about equality, not retribution and retaliation. Our aim must never to be to defeat or humiliate the white man. We must not become victimized with a philosophy of black supremacy. God is not interested merely in freeing black men and brown men and yellow men, but God is interested in freeing the whole human race. We must work with determination to create a society, not where black men are superior and other men are inferior and vice versa, but a society in which all men will live together as brothers and respect the dignity and the worth of the human personality. We must also avoid the temptation of being victimized with the psychology of victors. We have won marvelous victories. Through the work of the NAACP, we have been able to do some of the most amazing things of this generation. 
And I come this afternoon with nothing, nothing but praise for this great organization, the work that it has already done and the work that it will do in the future. And although they're outlawed in Alabama and other states, but y'all didn't know that, the NAACP was outlawed in a lot of Southern states. The fact still remains that this organization has done more to achieve civil rights for Negroes than any other organization we can point to. This is fine. But we must not, however, remain satisfied with a court victory over our white brothers. We must respond to every decision with an understanding of those who have opposed us and with an appreciation of the, the very difficult adjustments that the court orders pose for them. We must act in a way as to make possible a coming together of white people and colored people on the basis of real harmony of interest and understanding. We must seek an integration based on mutual respect. I conclude by saying that each of us must keep faith in the future. Let us not despair. Let us realize that as we struggle for justice and freedom, we have cosmic companionship. There's something in this universe which justifies Carlisle saying, no lie can live forever. There is something in this universe which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying, truth crushed to the earth will rise again. There is something in the universe which justifies James Russell Lowell in saying, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Go out with that faith today. Go back to your homes in the Southland to that faith, with that faith today. Go back to Philadelphia, to New York, to 1957 Detroit and Chicago with that faith today. That the universe is on our side in the struggle. Stand for justice. Stand up for justice. Sometimes it gets hard, but it is always difficult to get out of Egypt for the Red Sea always stands before you with discouraging dimensions. And even after you've crossed the Red Sea, you have to move through a wilderness with prodigious hilltops of evil and gigantic mountains of opposition. But I say to you on this afternoon, keep moving. Let nothing slow you up. Move on with dignity and honor and respectability. I realize that it will cause restless nights sometimes. It may cause losing a job. It will cause suffering and sacrifice. It may even cause physical death for some. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing can be more Christian. I'm gonna just leave that right there for a minute. I'm gonna let folks sit with that. Because when you think about it, you know, he's saying this in 1957 and a short 11 years later, barely out of his 30s, he was dead. And he gave his life for this cause. His family sacrificed for this cause, for freedom, for equality. And to hear people today afraid to even discuss these topics in school, calling it critical race theory, calling it anti-woke, 
You're missing the whole point, right? Dr. King and so many others were not like, listen, we're not trying to do better than y'all and put you down and put you in prison. It's about, I deserve the same rights as you. You deserve the same rights as me. We should all move forward together as a country. But by hiding this history, by playing on these divisions, we do not grow as a country. We regress as a country. So taking all these words, I'm going to pivot to the topic of gerrymandering. Now, folks have probably heard that term kind of banter around like gerrymandering. What's this? Oh, my gosh, the map was gerrymandered. What does that mean? Okay, so every 10 years, a commission is put together in every single you know state, jurisdiction, whatever, where they redraw the maps for the districts for voting, right? So everyone, every one of us is in a voting district, right? And I hope everybody knows which, just which district they're in because if you don't know what district you're in, that means you haven't been voting and that's a bigger issue, okay? But I'm not gonna go there right now. So every person, every voter is in a particular district. These maps are drawn every 10 years. The reason why it's every 10 years is because again, we have the census every 10 years. So it's kind of in line of population shifting, different people moving in and out, people passing away, people now getting to voting age and registering to vote. And also you have to make sure that when you're drawing these maps and looking at these populations, you comply with the Voting Rights Act. And Southern states, former slaveholding states have more stringent requirements under the Voting Rights Act because of their history of disenfranchising or preventing people of color from voting, right? So when you draw your maps, you have to be, you know, consistent with the Constitution, consistent with the Voting Rights Act. But politics and politics, right? So it all depends who's drawing the map. And generally, the commission is put together by the party that's in power. So to be clear, Democrats gerrymander and Republicans gerrymander. And what that gerrymandering means is you are drawing the district to favor your party. So whoever the ruling party is, let's say in Florida, it's a Republican majority, they're gonna draw the districts to make sure that the balance of power stays in their favor, right? So that's what the whole thing about the drawing the maps is about. Now, gerrymandering is problematic when you start to try to either dilute people's power or to pack them in so tightly that they can't influence other elections that are happening around their community. Gerrymandering happens in one of two ways. One is called cracking and one is called packing. And I'm going to define that for you right now. Okay. So cracking is when you're splitting up groups of people with similar characteristics. So, and, and you, you basically just like you would think a crack, like if you crack a vase or whatever, you're splitting people that are similar and sticking them into different jurisdictions, right? So let's say you have one particular, you know, voting district that's have like heavily democratic. Well, if you wanted to gerrymander and you wanted to use the, the style of cracking, what you would do is, okay, I've got this city. I'm going to cut it into four pieces and stick one, you know, let's say there's a hundred democratic voters. I'm making this up just to make it easy. There's a hundred democratic voters in this one particular community. If you're cracking, you're going to divide it up and stick 25 in a different voting district, 25 in another voting district and split it up that way. 
which means that community loses that ability to be able to vote Democratic because their voting power has been diluted. So now those 25 people may be pushed into a majority Republican district where their Democratic vote barely holds any sway, right? But now you've destroyed this whole pocket of Democratic voters. That's one way you can do it. Another way you can do it still in that cracking style is it's a majority Black district, let's say. So let's say you take a city like Overtown, right? Predominantly Black. Now you're like, listen, I wanted to like dilute these black folks' voting power. I can't do it by like putting marshals and preventing them from voting, right? Which that's a separate issue. We've seen some questionable behavior in that line, but just let let's say they want to go about it in a way that appears to be above board. They would then split Overtown into four different sections and then stick them, let's say, with, you know, the the voting district that's Brickle. They'll stick it with another jurisdiction, again, that's maybe more predominantly white, and that dilutes their ability to select someone who can address the issues that are happening in their particular community. So that's one form of gerrymandering called cracking. The second form of gerrymandering is called packing, which is the exact opposite, which means you're shoving people together into one district so that way they don't have the ability to influence other elections. Let me get to the, the legal definition of it. So packing means the map drawers cram certain groups of voters into as few districts as possible. In these few districts, the packed groups are likely to elect their preferred candidates but the flip side is that these groups' voting strength is weakened everywhere else. So in this particular district, that's a packed district, right? Again, let's use Overtown as an example. And again, I'm not they are not the topic of the lawsuit. Well, they're part of that lawsuit, but not fully, but I'm not going to go down that, that rabbit hole for now. But let's say you pack all the folks in Overtown, right? So you got a whole bunch of Black folks and voters in Overtown, right? If you pack them all there, Great. That means for any representative that comes out of the Overtown area, that's going to be reflective of the voters that are there. But what if they wanted to, you know, what about their power in the, the mayoral elections, right? What about their power in countywide elections? Now their voting power is diminished because they're kind of crammed into one area and it's harder for their vote to be able to count in other elections that could be important, right? And again, if you're thinking about your state representative, that's a bunch of different cities together. Again, when you start looking at some of these maps and they're drawn all crazy, right? So you're like, all right, well, my district is, you know, for my literally my district is like Miami Beach, but then it like goes all the way up the Sunny Isles and then it takes a little bit of Broward County and it's like all drawn all like crooked and weird, right? Well, that was done deliberately because of the fact that, you know, a lot of this area is heavily Democratic but it also can help dilute some of that democratic power. And we saw in my particular district, you know, state representative before was Mike Rico. He was a shout out to Mike. Hey, Mike, hope all is well. Um, but, you know, he was termed out and then it was an election, an open election for a, for a new state rep. Well, the new state rep is now a Republican, which 
I, you know, I have nothing to say about it. I don't know too much about him. I know that there had been some scandal about some things he has done in the past. But again, I have not seen him as a legislature, as a legislator. I'm hopeful. Maybe he'll do some amazing things. I hope he does. But again, this area, my district, is predominantly Democratic. So again, how did a Republican win in a highly Democratic district? Maybe his messaging was on point. I didn't see a whole lot of ads, so I'll admit. So was it a matter of the fact that the maps were drawn differently? And that allowed the opportunity for more Republican voters to be able to, to, to you know, change the outcome. I don't know. But again, these are all the issues that come up when you have you know, these crazy redrawing of maps where it's not like logical, like, okay, we'll just split the county in four and all the, you know, cities in this district, that's one voting district and all the cities over here are one district. It shouldn't be about trying to squiggle the line in such a way to make sure that you get the voters you want so that you can stay in power. That's, that's the beginning, middle and end of the problem, right? So, with that being said, here is the prime example, the city of Miami. So the ACLU of Florida, as we all know, I used to be the deputy director there. I'm no longer with the ACLU. So this is just me like, you know, looking at the suit and kind of, you know, giving this information. The ACLU of Florida has filed a lawsuit, you know, with regards to the maps that were drawn in the city of Miami. The plaintiffs, so the people suing, include the NAACP, they include the um, the ACLU, obviously, and Engage Miami, which tends to work with a lot of young people and, you know, kind of help developing their political power. So this lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court in Miami, and it basically alleges that the commission override it, overrode the goal in drawing its maps, and the goal was to separate racial groups into, into as many different districts as possible, far beyond what the Voting Rights Act requires. So in other words, they went above and beyond to kind of, you know, jack everybody up for their own gain, right? So what they ended up doing was packing all of the Black voters into District 5, all the Hispanic voters into Districts 1, 3, and 4, and then that, by doing that, was unconstitutional in nature and diminished these voters' ability and their influence in adjacent districts. So they can't really have a full say in everything that's going on in the city of Miami because it was squished into one particular area that makes no sense for the purposes of preserving political power. So the way that this gerrymandering was done did not advance representation. So there's there's a way to gerrymander that is not a horrible thing, right? So for instance, we saw that in Central Florida, there were a couple majority Black districts that were able to, they generally elected a Black representative, Black senator, whatever the case may be, to go to the Florida legislature. That was important because again, you want to make sure that there's diversity of people, that the legislature reflects the residents of the state, right? So having an all black district isn't always a bad thing, but in the way that the maps were redrawn, it completely eliminated those two districts in central Florida, which meant now it made it even more difficult 
for Black folks to be able to be elected into these positions because, again, their voting base is no longer in their district. So, again, that turns out to be a bad thing because now you're affecting the diversity that's happening within the legislature. And for folks who are like, listen, a legislature is supposed to reflect the electorate they serve. And if you go up to Tallahassee and it's all white people, I'm talking white, white, and your state has black folks, it has indigenous folks, it has Hispanic folks, right? Their voices are not being represented in the legislature. And that's a problem because again, each group has their unique experience that they come to the table with, whether it was from being an immigrant, whether it was fleeing communism, whether it was, you know, working in a particular field, like all of those experiences come to bear when it comes to figuring out what bills make sense, what laws should be implemented and how it's going to impact different groups of people. How are we going to make sure that we're being equitable if we don't have all the voices at the table. So that's why the whole gerrymandering thing can be so dangerous. It can be done in a way that is, is compliant with the Voting Rights Act and is in a way of furthering justice. But the way that it's been done here in Florida does not meet those ends. So that's why there's a lawsuit with regards to that. So these lawsuits take time. They're not resolved in like a minute. So this is something that's going to be ongoing for the next year or so, if not more. And I'll keep bringing updates as, as relevant. Just remember, at the end of the day, it should be the voters picking their politicians, not the politicians picking their voters. Because that is not democracy. So with that, I'm going to leave y'all with one final reminder that as a result of legislation that was passed last year, if you have signed up to vote by mail, your vote by mail ballot has expired. So in other words, you will, the next election is 2024, a next major election, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some municipal ones, for instance, the Miami Beach mayoral race will be later on this year, you know, and so there's other smaller municipalities. And that's something, of course, you should pay attention to. But the next big election is 2024. It's a presidential race. Don't think you go roll up and be like, okay, well, my I signed up for vote by mail, so that should be, I should be good forever. And you're waiting and your ballot never comes, right? You have to now reapply, not reapply, but re-sign up every two years. So right now, if you have signed up to vote by mail before December 31st, 2022, it has expired. So you need to go back and renew it and you have to do that actively. So I will provide the links for that. Uh, I have the link for Dade County and then I have another link that you can click to figure out your supervisor of election in the state of Florida. And that's the office that you need to contact to be able to renew your vote by mail ballot. Again, it's super convenient. You know, it's not a difficult process. Basically, you go on the website, you download the form, you fill it out, and you mail it off to the people. I believe there's a way that you can download it, fill it out, and email it back. I don't know that that applies to every single supervisor of elections, but just go on the website, click the link, you know, learn more, understand what the requirements are, and then move forward from there. Because again, your voice is your vote. No matter if you're in a gerrymandered jurisdiction or whatever, at the end of the day, you still need to vote. 
you still need to vote because by sitting there and not saying a word to me, that's disrespectful of Dr. King's legacy and him laying down his life so that all of us have the ability to vote despite the politics and politics that others may be implementing to try to prevent that. So that is where we stand for today. So again, uh, Dr. King, thank you for your sacrifice. We honor you today on your birthday. We will try to honor all of your legacy each and every day, but today we pause to reflect, honor, and celebrate all that you were. And so thank you everyone for tuning in. Next week, we're going to have Cheryl Francis come on. She will be my guest. We will be discussing finances because you know what? It's 2023, y'all, and it's time to secure the bag and get that money right. It's a good time for you to think about, you know, your retirement plan, where, you know, where things stand. Maybe take a look at your social security and see what that projection is going to look like and start to think about the future to be able to make sure you can be as financially stable as possible in your situation. All right, y'all. Take good care. Bye.